Maybe somebody can turn the lights on a little more bright. So this is week six. We'll have small groups later tonight. And uh, I don't think we have the sign-out up yet for the summer course, which begins the last Monday in June. So there's quite a break uh, between the end of this course next Monday and the beginning of the summer course. And I'm forgetting right now what the summer course is. It has been decided. It's in the new newsletter. But I can't recall right now what it is but it will be good. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm constantly impressed with these teachings. And uh, even though I've been a you know, pretty serious, pretty regular student of these teachings for a long time now, I just really enjoy it a lot. I'm so grateful that I have my job is to reflect on these teachings, study these teachings, share these teachings. So please join in for that if you're interested. And we will be meeting one more time next week. So this is just a seven-week course. I'll be living on retreat on the 26th for the Common Ground Residential Retreat and then going out to IMS for a retreat with Saida Utejaniya. Some of you know him because we've been passing out his books for the last couple of years. Steve Armstrong is one of his better-known students and uh, real promoter of Sayada and partly responsible for getting him to IMS. So I'll be there for two weeks and then three weeks I'll be renting a cabin um, and doing a retreat. So that's why I'll be gone for those periods, that period. And then just so people know, the first three weeks in June we'll be having another intensive practice period from I think it's Monday the 4th of June through Thursday the 22nd or possibly the 21st, whatever that Thursday is. And it will end with a day-long retreat on that Thursday. And um, Ajahn Jyotipala will be joining us for that day-long program. He'll be coming into town that Wednesday before it. And so just time for more sitting practice and daily life practice. And we'll be meeting on Monday nights for people who are part of that June intensive. And uh, times set aside for one-on-one practice meetings for those who are interested and a set of Dharma talks will be put together from some of our senior teachers in this tradition that you can listen to online or come to the center in the middle of the day and listen with who's ever here for that. So more information will be in the newsletter and posted on the bulletin board if you're interested in that June practice period. So just a few heads up. Now we have the evening to talk about restlessness and maybe a little bit more sleepiness and then small groups for the last half an hour. So just to remind ourselves that uh, Buddha had this particular formulation when we're giving careless attention to the attributes of the hindrance, that's the cause for it to proliferate or to continue to deepen, to expand. You can remember that beautiful, powerful image of the encircling vines, you know, the very clever plants that have 
They become very big, even though the seeds are small, embedded in fruit that animals eat and then poop on the branches of big trees, and then they start to grow there just from the air, the moist air, eventually dropping roots down into the soil, and over time encircling the trees, taking over the structure of the tree itself. And that's what happens when we give this careless or unwise attention to craving or to aversion, to sleepiness, to restlessness, to doubt. And this is the thing about uh, having become so proud of and addicted to our thinking, we just assume that the way to deal with my restlessness or my sleepiness or my greediness or my aversion, my irritation, or my doubt, it just seems so relevant to think about it. Like that would be the way to handle it. But generally, thinking about it is this process of giving careless attention to the hindrance instead of bringing careful attention to, in a sense, its opposite. So I want to read a few things from the Buddha about this. And this, again, comes from that um, article that I sent out by Nyanaponika Tara, this Western Buddhist monk who collected many of the discourses in that uh, article. So the Buddha says, um, there is quietude of mind, frequently giving wise attention to it. That is the denourishing of the arising restlessness and remorse that have not yet arisen and the decrease and weakening of the restless of restlessness and remorse that have already arisen. There is quietude of mind frequently giving wise attention to it. So what is that what is that object, quietude of mind? I'll try to point to that in the guided meditation instructions about just noticing the space. So there may be a lot of restlessness, but that activity is happening happening into space. When we give attention to the restlessness, there's going to be a shadow. You know, it's like however exciting, however important it seems to figure it out, the shadow is that the mind is investing in the idea that it's not already at peace. It's investing in this, instead in this idea that peace will come when I figure this out. Whatever that is that we're trying to figure out, even trying to figure out how to be comfortable in the body. So there are six things that in the tradition that are conducive to the abandonment of restlessness and remorse. Knowledge of these wise teachings, asking questions, or you could say reflecting on these wise teachings, sila and thinking about sila, thinking about non-harming, thinking about how to live in a way that is free from harming, association with wise people, people who possess dignity, restraint, and calm, friendship with wise people, people who have deep insight. I was noticing that Anita looked so light after her four months at the monastery, and she said, 
it was Ajahn Viryadamo, the abbot, or he used to be the abbot of the Wellington Monastery where she spent two months, but more recently has been in Ottawa, north of Ottawa. There's a monastery there now that he founded. He's one of the senior Western <coughs> monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition. And it's true. If we had the good fortune to hang out with really, really wise people, we would get this tangential calm just from being in their vicinity in a regular way. Sometimes it can feel quite, you know, I don't know what the right word is, maybe sad. <laughs> when we read about all these people, you know, and you don't, we don't really know what happened at the time of the Buddha, but it seemed like there were a lot of people becoming fully awakened here and there for the Buddha's 45 years of teaching. And, but we can just, you know, even bringing to mind, we'll get a little tangential high, like, yeah, it probably was pretty amazing to be around people who were completely free of greed and aversion. And then once they're, you know, after a while, there wasn't just one, right? There were many enlightened or awakened disciples of the Buddha, men and women, who had the same depth of freedom that the Buddha had, fully awakened people. And, you know, you could easily brush this aside as like, uh, you know, kind of a mythical, you know, just like we believe in unicorns, we believe in awakened beings. But actually, especially in Theravada Buddhism, it's, it's really important to keep an open mind, if not having direct faith that it is possible for people to awaken, to really express in a profound way the absence of greed and aversion as they go about their day. It's really important we keep an open mind to that because it provides the appropriate inspiration, the energy to do the practice. I mean, why else would we do this? Why would we keep opening to the mind and opening to the conditioned states of the mind, the heavy, sometimes heavy, unpleasant conditioned states of the mind, unless there's some intuitive sense or maybe even based just on hearing other people talk about it. So no direct sense, but just some inspiration from reading about the, this as a possibility. But it's really important to stay open and to, if you have no faith, then to look at that and see, what is that based on? You know, why not have an open mind about it, at least, at a minimum, in the minimum, have an open idea that it's possible. We don't have to believe it blindly, but just to stay open. And then if you're fortunate enough to be around people who have really developed a practice, you'll get the sense of how deep the ease is most of the time for these people, how resilient their calm and good nature is, good-heartedness is. That doesn't mean that, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know if I've come across anybody who's fully awakened, but seems like I've been around people who, uh, who are well along in their practice and uh, I'm really grateful. Those moments were really inspire a lot of faith that stays, uh, that's relevant for me today even. So noble friendship and suitable conversation. And by this, mostly it means having a conversation about the disadvantages of being caught in restlessness and the advantages of calm. Imagine that, <laughs> sitting down for coffee and talking about how wonderful calm is or how 
uh, addicting and heavy and uh, dissipating of the mind's energy, the heart's energy, restlessness is, remorse. So these are the similes I read from the first week, but I'll just revisit them. There is water in a pot, stirred by the wind, agitated, swaying, and producing waves. A person with, normal, uh, with a normal faculty of sight could not properly recognize and see the image of his or her own face. In the same way, when one's mind is possessed by restlessness and remorse, overpowered by restlessness and remorse, one cannot properly see the escape from restlessness and remorse that, has, that have arisen. Then one does not properly understand one's own welfare nor that of another. So what the Buddha is saying here is that if we can't see our own face or if we can't open to things as they are because of the restlessness and remorse, then basically we're no good for taking care of ourselves or taking care of others. We're going to act in the world in ways that maybe we'll be fortunate every once in a while to act in ways that will be helpful for ourselves and others but we're just as likely to act in ways that aren't helpful because we can't see clearly, because the restlessness and remorse is obstructing clarity. And then the last part of this section of the Buddhist teaching, he says, and also text memorized a long time ago do not come into one's mind, not to speak of those not memorized. Right? So it's like just in the moment where we would need some like useful instruction, we can't bring it to mind because we're caught up in restlessness and remorse. This is, I think this gets repeated for all of the other um, hindrances. You know, We're not able to bring to mind the teachings when we're caught in craving, when we're caught in aversion, when we're caught in sleepiness, caught in restlessness and caught in doubt. So it's like our wisdom has been stripped away. It's not actually gone. It's just not accessible because the mind is fixated on the restlessness and remorse. It's taking it as a personal problem. Ayakema has a a wonderful book called Being Nobody, Going Nowhere. One of the better Buddhist book titles, I think. (laughs) In that, she says, Worry besets most people and makes the mind tumultuous. It takes away from the moment, which is the only one which we can live. Moments spent in worrying are all lost moments. Unless we live in each moment, we are missing life. When we think about the past and worry about the future, we aren't living. We are remembering and projecting. That's not living. Life cannot be thought about. It has to be experienced. That's the only way life can ever mean anything. And experiencing can only happen in each moment. This is one of the skills that meditation teaches us, to live in the moment, which means to live at all. So the two words for restlessness and worry or sometimes called restlessness and remorse they're nice words what's that word that means when words sound like what they mean is it atamanapiya yeah they're kind of like this so it's udacha and 
kukucha. Kukucha. Udacha and kukucha. Sounds a little bit like restlessness and remorse. Or worry and flurry sometimes. Or flurry and worry. It gets translated as. And the remorse is, you know, when we haven't, when we've done something bad or didn't do something that was good that we should have done, it eats away at us. It creates that agitation, that restlessness. So that's why it's included, you know, in these states of mind that are scattered and unsettled. One of the reasons why in the Buddhist traditions uh, sila is so important, ethical conduct is so important, is because to um, remove the cause of suffering, the mind has to see things as they are. And one of the biggest obstructions for seeing things as they are is the guilt and remorse we feel for our bad actions. And it's like this terrible feedback loop. If we've done a lot of bad things in our life and we feel badly about them, we feel guilt, or we're spending a lot of psychic energy not knowing, not remembering that we've done a lot of bad things in our life, all of that keeps us from seeing clearly so we're likely to continue to do bad things in our life, acting in ways that harm ourselves and others. So you can think, you know, in Buddhism, one of the lists is the ten courses of uh, wrong action. So we have killing and stealing and sexual misconduct, and then the four kinds of wrong speech, lying, harsh speech, malicious speech, idle speech, and then we have um, covetousness, ill will, and wrong view, like uh, taking self as some permanent entity. So these are the, all of these things are, will lead to remorse. You know, if we're caught up in a self-centered drama, to some degree we're going to feel guilty about that because it doesn't feel right to be totally self-centered. In the moment it does, but later most of us have enough space in our minds that if we've been really like in a self-centered storm earlier in the day, later we'll feel like that wasn't quite right. That wasn't a balanced view. You know, I was self-absorbed. I was lost in my stuff. I got caught up, and I'm sorry about it. And then we have this remorse, this guilt that agitates the mind. The word udacha actually means something like shaking above. The mind is unstable, so it doesn't actually land or connect. And the Buddha uses an image that maybe is related about the monkey um, you know, we have in the West now, we call it like monkey mind, but there's a simile the Buddha used about how a monkey, when it's traveling, you know, will grab a branch for just a moment, just enough to swing and let go and grab the next branch. So the mind isn't really landing or settling with anything. It's always about what's next, always anticipating, wanting. And of course, the whole culture reinforces this part of the mind that It's really the movement, the movement of desire, the movement of aversion. We like that intensity of moving. And in a way, at least at times, we seem to mistrust the settledness or the calmness or the non-doing. It's almost like we've given up our life when we're just resting, not resting sleeping, but resting in a 
awakened state, like present. We have energy, we could do something. Or even in the midst of doing, the mind isn't involved in being the one who's doing. You know, like when we do walking practice, like I walked here this evening, and I was trying to do my best to practice. And in moments, you know, it's like letting the walking be, you know, there was walking, but not having to be the one who's walking. Or I could even be giving a talk, but not investing with the idea that I'm giving a talk. And so the awareness can be aware that a talk is being given, the body is moving, but, but not sort of establishing, uh, which is so agitating, you know, somebody who's doing it. Because as soon as we have a somebody who's doing it, then there's a somebody who's either, we think, doing it wrong or somebody we think is doing it right, all of which is agitating for the mind. Somewhere in the suttas, I, I heard this quote, but I haven't actually found the sutta, Movement masks dukkha. I'd like to find that sutta if anybody ever sees it around in your reading. Movement masks dukkha. So physical movement masks dukkha. You know, when we're physically restless, it's like we're moving the body because it feels like it would be intensely unpleasant to be still. Earlier today, when I was preparing, you know, I was at home working and big, vast, spacious home that I live in. No one else was there. And it's like so easy to get up and do things, you know. Go move this, go put this away, go get something to eat, go check on this. And just to notice that movement of the body, movement of the mind. And, uh, you know, just to see, is it masking? What kind of dukkha might it be masking? like some aversion to settling into the work. For me, I think part of it is uh, the ego is attached with accomplishing things. So settling into a task, you know, and the thing about studying the Dharma, and especially the way I prepare now, it's like I'm not taking so much specific notes as I'm just sort of generally studying studying so it doesn't like have a clear end there's like no end to studying or reflecting on these teachings and so it's different than like taking something and putting it somewhere else or cleaning something up or checking your emails I mean that seems like a more definitive act for the ego than sort of ongoing reflection and just seeing that subtle, sometimes not so subtle, addiction to accomplishing acts, getting things done, making the universe orderly. <laughs> you know, and, that, and the little juice, you know, there's a kind of an ego juice that I get from that activity. It's really, for me, one of the hardest things on retreat is uh, it's like negotiating that space where I don't have as many responsibilities. And I notice, I notice this thing about my mind, it's like I either like to be in that accomplishing mode or I don't want anything to do with it. And you know, on retreat, you still have things you have to do. And then it's like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. It's like, it's like the mind swings the other way. 
so it doesn't want to do anything. And then, of course, you probably remember, you know, the Buddha talks about three types of craving. There's craving for sense pleasures. There's craving to become, you know, become the one who lives in an orderly world where everything is done right. And then there's the craving to, for things to be done, uh, to be done with having to make the world an orderly place. And so I, I noticed that swinging back and forth. And both are agitating. It's a restlessness. There's a restlessness in not wanting to be involved in the world because it's messy or because it, you never, you never end, it never ends, you never get done. As soon as you end up with one meal, you know, cleaning up one meal, it isn't long before you have to start preparing the next meal, you know? And then there's the eating and then there's cleaning up and again and again. Or, you know, I notice this, I see this aversion, <laughs> anybody who's walked by the old center and seen our garden, I see this with gardening. Theoretically, I really like gardening. But I notice in an unconscious way, I mean, in a way that's not very conscious, I notice this part of my mind that understands that it's never going to be done. You know, you can pull up weeds, but they're going to come back. It just There's just more work to it. And I think, like, I like the garden when it's really nice and orderly and, you know, beautiful. But I don't like the fact that it's, the work is never done. And I know that it will never be done. That's disturbing for the mind. So when I work in the garden, it's more of this, like, get it done, get it orderly. Or I revert to, oh, why bother? There's no middle ground with that. Now I'm in that why bother stage. <laughs> and before long, it will be mid-June, and then it will be hopeless. So just uh, some thoughts, more thoughts about working with restlessness. And you can think about this in terms of your small groups too, how you, what you might share in your small groups, you know, ways that you, you know, your particular addiction, addictions act themselves out and uh, produce restlessness. <laughs> One funny story from Sharon Salzberg she talks about a time when she was practicing in India during her first years of practice and uh, was so in love with the practice, so inspired by the practice. So all during her sits, she was planning how she could extend her visa. She never wanted to go back. She wanted to live in India the rest of her life and just practice. And so she talked about how through the whole sit, she would be very clear exactly what needed to be done, who she would go to to get her visa approved so she could stay for another year. And then the next year, like she couldn't go back to that same person. She'd have to go to a different visa office. She, you know, remembering all the places she's heard other people talk about and where she could go and what excuse she'd use. And, you know, of course, that's restlessness. And she says at the end of that description, restlessness often comes from a desire to control that which is inherently uncontrollable. You can think about the ways that you seek stimulants. It's like one of the things I tend to do, I think it's pretty common, 
is when we are agitated, when we are overstimulated or restless, we want stimulants. It's almost like, uh, I mean, stimulants both in terms of we're interested in conversations or media that's vibrating at the same frequency as our own agitation. And if we happen to be around somebody who's really calm, it's irritating. Their calmness <laughs> is irritating to us. And it really tells, it tells us that we're in that position of being addicted, attached to the intensity of restlessness. It may be really unpleasant, but in a way the mind is so caught in the content of the restlessness and the energy, the movement of restlessness, it doesn't realize how painful it is. And it, all it knows, all it wants is to keep feeding it. So it seeks out other experiences that are vibrating in a sense at the same, in the same way. So a few things, and you can reflect on these in terms of how, you, how you've worked or what's worked in your life, but one of the things that really seems to work with restlessness is committing, deeply committing to the practice of harmony and integrity and ethical conduct, what we call sila. And uh, basically anything that's sobering for the mind what, how can we look at life in a way that's sobering? Because it pulls the plug on that restless activity of the mind. When we recognize how harmful, when we recognize our, how immediately harmful restlessness is, but also how we set ourselves up for creating harm because we're not connected when we're restless. We're not really reading the situation. I mean, in this room alone, if we added up all of the terrible things we said to other people because our mind was sort of restless and agitated and not grounded, and how many moments we said something we wish we hadn't said or things we did that we wish we hadn't done, it's easy to make mistakes when we're all hyped out or agitated or worked up you know, in a flurry. Reviewing, reflecting on the seven factors of awakening. So just understanding that, the, basically having a, uh, a deep sense of value for the tranquilizing qualities of mind, that they have an important place in our life at all times, not just when we're on a meditation retreat, but imagine if our culture valued tranquility as much as it values energy. You know, all the ways that we get reinforced, like how, how much we don't like dull people. You know, I feel, I mean, maybe it's just because I tend to be more of a restless type, but um, I, I feel irritated around dull people. And, uh, and like I want to fix them you know, jazz them up. <laughs> no, it's true. And, you know, it's not a very pleasant thing to be around. I mean, nobody likes to be fixed. Probably more calm and dull people want to <laughs> pull the plug on the restless ones, right? So 
the reason we want to review the seven factors of awakening is it just makes it really clear how we're out of balance. Like, well, yeah, there may be a lot of energy, but there's no tranquility. And for the dull folks, you know, there may be tranquility, but there's no energy, there's no brightness, there's no investigation, there's no interest. So to be responsible for that balance. Of course, deeper states of samadhi really deepens us value of tranquility because we directly experience how healing it is to touch um, uh, calm and tranquility, to rest in that space. And then the last thing you know you can reflect on for your small group is just ways you specifically have fed restlessness, ways that you've undermined it or allowed it to pass away. One thing from Joko Beck, many of you have heard me talk about, it's in one of her books, this teaching on ABC, a bigger container, which can create tranquility or can allow restlessness to fall away. When we just keep whatever it is that's agitating, whatever that restlessness is, it's in a sense we're stepping back, stepping back, stepping back, and noticing that that restless activity, that worry, is happening in a vast space called the present moment. So we can even do that now just as a a way into our small groups. You know, just think about something in your life that is agitating, there is a lot of worry about, that there is a lot of energy around. And then create a big, vast perspective. Like see that particular problem in your life, let's say, See it in the context of your whole life, or even the life of the solar system, or galaxy, or universe. How relatively insignificant everything is, even birth and death. When we think about how many human beings have been born and died, or how many living creatures are being born and dying right now, it's really hard to hold up, you know, whether we should you know, have Mexican food tonight or Italian food or whether we should, you know, go see this friend this weekend or do something else or go on this retreat or that retreat or whatever the agitating thing might be, there is a way to have perspective and see that we still have to decide maybe, but ultimately it's not a very big deal at all. So we'll leave it here. Looks like maybe, uh, why, don't we, why don't we count off, assuming there's like 45 people, and then we'll make other groups if we need. So maybe 15. Can we start, Scott? One, two, I think Liz, are you next? Why don't we do this? Uh, I forget your name. What's your name? 
Brianna. Brianna. Thanks, Brianna. Sorry, I don't remember. So Brianna, Wynn, and Kat, you'd be a group. And then maybe the four of you left would be a group. So why don't the four of you do one in my office, then two can be in Shelley's desk, three, four, and, and five in the community room, six and seven in the lobby, eight on the white couch, uh, down in the basement right under here, nine around the table in the workshop, which is under the community room, 10 in that corner, 11 in that corner, 12 in this corner, 13 here, 14 by Alexis, 15 right here. Huh? You'll need one and two again? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so one and two. So how about one in the uh, entranceway, and you can go wherever else you want, but by the meet by the bench, and then two can be in the coat room area in the basement. Make sense? Everyone got a spot? So I'll bring the bell for any group that's close enough. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.